Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Friday, November 6th. We begin with our weekly conversation with Mayor Nahed Nenshi. We speak to the mayor about yesterday's record-setting number of new COVID-19 cases and if Calgarians can expect any new restrictions moving forward as a result of the drastic increase. Next, we continue our coverage of the ongoing U.S. federal election. Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent, has the latest numbers from the remaining battleground states. Canadian researchers based in Toronto have developed a potential treatment for Parkinson's disease. We speak with Larry Gifford, host and creator of the podcast When Life Gives You Parkinson's, about the significance of this development for those living with the disease. And finally, we go back, way back. We kick off a month-long series called Flashback Friday. This week, we focus on the super sensational 1970s. From pop culture to politics, music to fashion, it's like having your own personal time machine. 812... And it's certainly been a busy week for Calgary City Council. COVID-19 cases rising to alarming numbers in our city. Budget talks are underway. Insults are flying. With the latest, we're catching up with Mayor Nahed Nenshi. Good morning, Mr. Mayor. Good morning. What a great recap of the week we've had. That and, you know, people constantly hitting refresh on their browser on U.S. news sites all day. Pretty much. So we're starting out on a bit of a lighter note just to get you going here this morning because it's Flashback Friday and we're flashing back to the 70s today. So curious as to your memories of the 1970s in Calgary. Well, I was born in the 1970s um, and certainly uh, spent my first few years growing up in Marlboro here in Calgary and, you know, very typical 1970s kid memories, uh, dangerous playgrounds, a school that was built to the height of the standards at the time, which meant zero windows uh, in a big concrete building, which is still there, Marlboro Elementary, uh, but really a, a terrific childhood. Uh, we didn't have a lot of money, but we had a lot of opportunity uh, in this great city. Okay, good stuff. Well, uh, very similar memories on my uh, on my part, Mayor, and uh, the schools. Why didn't they think windows would be a good idea? Anyway. Um, <laughs> Don't let them out. Uh, going to switch gears and talk about the business at hand, and we'll start with COVID-19. And, you know, Mr. Mayor, it's, it's, it's good to be right. Um, but no, I'm sure not that, on I'm, this. I I'm, wanted yeah, to be wrong. I'm, I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure you would like to take it back. When you said, I believe it was on Tuesday, we could see close to 1,000 cases by the end of the week. Some people guffawed at you, and now here we are. What are your thoughts yeah. on the, the latest with around 800 new cases yesterday in the province? I mean, I feel like we have we give the same conversation every Friday. This is really bad. This is the most we've ever had by far. The active cases are bad. And the thing that has changed is when the cases started growing, you know, in August and September, uh, particularly when schools started, what we were seeing was kind of milder cases because the hospitalizations and the ICU rates were staying very steady. And now we're seeing the hospitalization rates start to go up as well. Uh, so people are, not only are more people getting it, people are getting more severe cases of it. And this, again, as always, is very dangerous. We know that the best thing to do is not get sick. And so we want to try and avoid that as much as possible. I'll say the same things I always say. Keep your distance. Wash your hands. Wear a mask. I'm going to add one. Get your flu shot. Because our job right now is to flatten the curve and to keep the healthcare system from getting overwhelmed. And at this time of year, the healthcare system gets very busy with people with influenza. So get your flu shot. Let's try and stay out of the healthcare system on that as best we can. Um, and just continue to do all those good hygiene things. And it really does mean, though, you've got to stop socializing. I know that sounds like a horrible thing to say. 
But to avoid a lockdown, what we need to do is we need to restrict ourselves as much as possible to keep our circles as small as possible, to stay home, to work from home where we can, to use takeout and delivery services maybe more than dine-in services and so on, just to try and manage this so that the government of Alberta doesn't have to take further steps to lock us down because nobody wants that. And, and I know on that note, we've talked to you about this before, but no indication from the province yet and, and therefore nothing from you through the city in terms of what could come should those numbers continue to rise? No, look, I had an emergency meeting uh, last night of our COVID group just to make sure to kind of dust off our plans and just make sure that all of that is there. Uh, you know, in terms of things like city services and city facilities, you've done pretty well. There's been no evidence of spread at rec centers or libraries, for example. And I know families really need these services and will need them more as the weather gets colder. But ultimately, there are things we can do. Now, the scariest thing about yesterday, even scarier than the 800 new cases, was the announcement that they're not going to do contact tracing for many people anymore. This is a very big problem. Uh, and what it means is if you, God forbid, are tested positive, you got to think of every single person that you have been in contact with for more than 15 minutes and contact them. And by the way, it also means we need that federal app now. No more delays mm-hmm. from the provincial government. It has to get in place because we need that data. We say welcome back to Mayor Nahed Nenshi here on Flashback Friday into the 70s. Uh, Mayor, thanks for joining us and being with us uh, again as we continue our discussion about all that's going on with council and councillors because we certainly had some infighting going on this week. Uh, we had Councillor Gondek calling out Councillor Farkas for insinuating he'd been fired from the police commission when actually his tenure simply ran out. Councillor Woolley mm-hmm. calling Councillor Chu a moron. Does this, do you think, undermine the work, the hard work that you and council are doing i mean of course it does uh and it's very frustrating but i also understand how people's frustrations are starting to boil over now you know i often say at council and i had to say it two or three times this week in fact to councillor farkas and Councillor Chu, that we're not the legislature we're not the house of commons we don't take swipes at each other on the floor of council uh and we don't make it personal and we don't uh, go off, go after people's motives and what they're trying to do. And I think that what we see here is that some councillors are getting frustrated because they see my saying that as an excuse for other councillors to get away with some pretty outrageous behaviour. Um, and, you know, Councillor Chu is a good example here. If you scroll through his Twitter feed, it's really mean-spirited. Mm-hmm. And for him to then say to Councillor Woolley, you know, we don't want mean-spirited dialogue... Uh, You know, I can see where people are getting frustrated, but ultimately everyone needs to calm down, (laughs) go back to their corners and focus on the extraordinary work we have to do. You know, this is not about an election a year from now. This is about getting a budget passed and getting people through this COVID crisis. Well, let's switch gears and talk about budget. And uh, you had a chance to preview the upcoming budget uh, described as in one word as austerity. Is Is that correct? What can we expect to see? Yeah, I think that's fair. I haven't seen the whole thing yet myself. I will just get a tiny sneak preview of it on the weekend before it is released to the public on Monday. Uh, And council will get it uh, probably on Sunday with me. Uh, And then we get briefed first thing in the morning on Monday, and it's released later in the morning uh, on Monday. The council gave a pretty specific uh, direction to administration on this one, which is that this year 
in light of COVID and so on. We want to see a tax freeze or better uh, for the average person. And I'm sure that that is what administration is going to come up with. That does mean some austerity. We've had to cover a lot of costs during COVID. um, And since the economic downturn in 2015, despite popular myth, our tax increases have been far below inflation uh, every year. So we're losing ground every year, uh, below inflation and growth, I should say. So we're losing ground every year. Uh, and in order to maintain a freeze or a tax cut for this coming year, which I support, it does mean that we're going to have to cut closer to the bone. So we should all get ready and uh, expect what's what's coming on Monday then, yes? Yeah, now ultimately the rule always is you got to avoid the frontline services, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Um, you got to try and keep the transit and the street cleaning and the police and the fire uh, as whole as possible. But that doesn't mean we don't look for efficiencies in those areas. And in fact, the police, you know, there's been all this misinformation about defund the police. Uh, what's actually going on is that the police, like every department, have gone through what I call a zero-based budget review process to try and see how they can do things more efficiently. And I expect that they will come up with some savings, just as every other department has, uh, in things that they can do a little more efficiently, uh, having gone through that process. And in addition to that, in September, the police themselves said, you know, there's some stuff we do that would actually be cheaper and better served through the community, and we should give up a little bit of our budget, not a huge amount, but a little bit of our budget for the stuff that other people can do better and reallocate that to other people doing it better. So I assume there'll be a bit of that, and that is why at council this week, it wasn't a vote to defund the police. It was a vote to say... If the police think other people can do it better, let's work with the police to figure out who those people are and what those services look like before budget. I'm glad you clarified that. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Happy Friday. Thank you. Take care. Happy weekend, everybody. Thank you. That is Mayor Nahed Nenshi. 709 on the morning news. Democrat Bo, uh, Bo Jiden. That's a different <laughs> Democrat. Democrat Joe Biden is now holding a slim lead in Georgia and his victories in the upper Midwest put him in a strong position to perhaps win the White House. But U.S. President Donald Trump is showing no sign of giving up. With the latest from the U.S. presidential race, we're joined by Reggie Cicchini, Global's Washington correspondent. Good morning to you, Reggie. Good morning. Have you ever seen the movie Groundhog Day? I uh, have. The same? Okay. Over and over and over. <laughs> you know where I'm going with this. It seems like we've talked about this for three days in a row because we have. Uh, but there is some new information this morning. Can you tell us about those tight uh, battleground states and uh, you know how tight those uh, numbers are this morning? So uh, the news that has come in over the last 15 minutes or so is that Joe Biden has now for the first time since uh, the counting started on Tuesday taken a lead in Pennsylvania. Uh, there were uh, roughly 30 or 40,000 ballots that came in from the pit, uh, from the uh, Philadelphia region. Uh, Joe Biden took 87% of those, more than 27,000 of them. That has now put him on the plus side of 5,000 from where he was uh, just you know an hour ago. So he's now leading Pennsylvania by more than 5,000. There are still tens of thousands of ballots that still need to be counted in Pennsylvania. Um, And what this does right now is make it more difficult for Donald Trump to play catch up in a state where what's left to count are mail-in ballots. And Joe Biden has been uh, kind of breaking that trend 80-20 when you split them up. So so this this could be, this could signal the end 
uh, is near uh, if Joe Biden takes this, if he takes Pennsylvania and it's called, uh, it's 20 electoral college votes. And that would, as of where he stands right now, put him either at 273 or 284. But Reggie, that's only if those votes are legitimate, because as we saw yesterday, frankly, it was it's quite sh- quite shocking to see Donald Trump stand up at the podium in the White House and say that the whole election was rigged. It was it, it was unbelievable what he was saying. It was unbelievable. And uh, I'm sure that I'm going to get uh, angry emails and angry tweets for saying this. But Donald Trump stood at the podium inside the White House and lied for 17 minutes, uh, Mm -hmm. undermining election integrity and uh, uh, delegitimizing a voting process that has been undertaken in this country for 240 years. There has been no widespread voter fraud anywhere across this country. Uh, Donald Trump has complained about it for months. The Republican Party, who stands in line with Donald Trump, has been complaining about this for months, and none of them have brought forth any evidence or any proof of any voter fraud to the point that in Michigan and Georgia, lawsuits are being thrown out because evidence simply doesn't exist. And if you're seeing videos on Twitter... If you can't source where that video comes from because it's simply being passed around, question whether or not that video is real uh, if there's nobody who is legitimate actually passing it around. Reggie, we're hearing reports that some of the major networks in the U.S. did an unprecedented thing, which was to, to cut out of the president's press conference. Is that right? It is. Uh, the network's cut away after a couple of minutes uh, of the president approaching the podium. You know, we have to remember here, the president was speaking in his capacity as the Republican candidate last night. Uh, the White House is not supposed to be used for any kind of politicking, uh, especially in a campaign. So it violated the Hatch Act. There's apparently an investigation underway by uh, the Office of the Special Counsel. Besides that, uh, this is not all that unprecedented. During the coronavirus uh, task force meetings, when the president would hold those on a daily basis, most networks would pull away from President Trump uh, because he was peddling conspiracy theories or factually incorrect information about the virus, and they would come back when the doctors were on stage. This has happened in the past. It is unusual to not air the president, but last night when the president immediately started uh, trafficking in conspiracy theories simply because he was losing or is losing, um, the networks felt it was in the best interest of the American public to ensure that they were not being given misinformation. Any response from any high-profile Republicans who are speaking out against what he did yesterday? House Leader Kevin McCarthy uh, on the Republican side, uh, Senate Judiciary uh, Chairman uh, uh, Lindsey Graham on Fox News last night, uh, standing with the president, uh, actively calling on the American public to give them the proof for the theories that they've been pushing for weeks now because they don't have any of their own. Uh, And this is um, this is who's standing with the president right now. We've seen people push away. Mitt Romney, uh, uh, some of the uh, representatives across the United States. Uh, We've seen governors, including Larry Hogan of Maryland, step back and say this is not what the Republican Party stands for right now. Voting is not uh, something that needs to be delegitimized across this country. And they're pushing back, saying what President Trump did last night damages democracy domestically more so and worse than any hostile or, or adversarial nation to the United States could ever do. It's uh, almost like the whole election has been put on pause since we're still uh, waiting. It's been a few days. So things have been perhaps a lot more calmer than expected. We talked uh, earlier this week about the boarded up windows, about the non-scalable fence outside the White House. So it has been relatively calm. Uh, Are you expecting or can we expect the same if we do get a decision in the next hour or next several hours? Uh, Or do we, uh, you know, are we still seeing those precautions in place and security high? Look, it, it's possible that that something could happen tonight, you know, uh, or or today rather. Um, this is an emotionally charged 
politically exhausted uh, country. Uh, so on either side of this, you are going to get people that are unhappy with what the outcome is going to be, and it could spark some kind of unrest. In the last 24 hours, we've heard uh, of, a, of a pair of Virginia people traveling to Pennsylvania, being arrested with long guns on them, attempting to go into uh, a polling center. So there is uh, a legitimate fear uh, for a threat of violence that's happening around the country. There is a hope that it will not happen, but law enforcement for weeks now has been on the ready and on standby in case something happens. Reggie, I read this morning the U.S. Secret Service is sending in reinforcements to Wilmington, Delaware, where Biden is based. Is that based on threat or is that just something that they normally would do? Well, so Joe Biden has had some detail with him uh, getting this close to an election where he could be considered president elect uh, sometime in the very near future uh, would require him to have more Secret Service personnel with him. It would require Kamala Harris to have uh, a, a security detail with her as well. But we do have to remember that he is not the president-elect, and there is still a possibility that something could go wrong here. Uh, and, and that is why uh, security is being uh, increased around the White House, around Donald Trump, and around uh, the Democratic challenger, who right now uh, is very quickly approaching that 270 mark. Reggie, we'll let you sneak out and grab a Red Bull because you have another... <laughs> Another action-packed day ahead of you. Thank you. Thank you so much. That is Reggie Cicchini, Global's Washington correspondent. 849 now. Researchers in Toronto are in the early stages of developing what's being called a world-first treatment for Parkinson's disease. Enter Larry Gifford, who was diagnosed with young-onset Parkinson's in 2017 at the age of 45. Now, Larry's the national director of talk radio for our parent company, Chorus Entertainment, in Canada, and hosts the podcast, When Life Gives You Parkinson's, and he joins us now. Good morning, Larry. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. You know, when you hear about a potential treatment, are you cynical? Do you get excited? How does this make you feel? Well, it is a, it's very early on. Right, right now, they're just trying to figure out if it's a safe way to do the trial. Uh, so it's first phase. You know, you get excited when something passes the second phase and goes into the third phase because that's when it, they start using it in multiple different um, parts of the world with um, bigger groups of people. Mm -hmm. But what's really cool about this is that they're using focused ultrasound technology to, it's to sort of like massage the blood-brain barrier to poke little holes into it so they can feed uh, the medication through, through the blood-brain barrier, which we've never been able to do before. Uh, and the blood-brain barrier is really important because it keeps all the, the nasty stuff from hitting your brain. Uh, but it also keeps the good stuff from getting to your brain, so mm -hmm. like medication. So uh, that's, that's the really exciting uh, just develop, development here. I'm just wondering, you know, this is coming out of uh, Toronto, Larry. How are we viewed and, and how successful has uh, Canada been when it comes to tackling and moving ahead uh, towards looking for a treatment or a cure, for that matter, for Parkinson's? Well, yeah, wouldn't a cure be nice? Mm. Um, <laughs> it's only been 203 years. Oh, is that <laughs> it? Okay. Let's not rush it. <laughs> Let's be patient. <laughs> um, uh, you know what? Canada is uh, is uh, really respected around the world. Um you know, in the in British Columbia, uh, UBC, uh, they have a brain, uh, world-renowned brain center. Uh, Dr. John Stossel was uh, the, the president of the, the World Parkinson Coalition for the last couple of years. Uh, so uh, it's, in Canada, is like doing some really cool stuff. They're, they're doing open science for drug development. They've got this thing called uh, um, uh, this is the, the, the Canadian Open Parkinson's Network. 
um, where all these universities have agreed to share information about their research. And uh, so they're, they're really setting the table for the rest of the world, and they need to. Um, it, it's, it's really uh, unfortunate to say this, but the, the, the prevalence of Parkinson's in Canada per 100,000 people uh, is greater than any other country in the world. Wow, that's shocking. So, I mean, if folks want to tune into your podcast, When Life Gives You Parkinson's, I'm sure you'll be talking about this ongoing potential treatment and, and so much more information. Is that available on all of our regular podcasting platforms? It, it certainly is, and you can go to uh, parkinsonspod.com. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, let's hope that this continues to, to become something that is a viable option for folks suffering from Parkinson's. That would be amazing. It would. Thanks for joining us, Larry. Thanks. Larry Gifford, a National Director of Talk Radio for Chorus Entertainment in Canada. That's a flashback for you, Sue. You know it, boy. This is Flashback Friday. We are flashing back to the 1970s. Uh, Great memories with that music and that montage. And so much great music came out of the 70s. You kind of forget till you hear it and go, oh my gosh, I love that song. Flashback Fridays uh, every Friday this month, kicking off again with the 70s. Brought to you by Fair Play Wild Bird Center. Now, you've got some great texts because the music really touched so many people and uh, people connect and remember the decade for the music. Most definitely. I, just uh, some things that I kind of looked into, too, as we were you know coming into this show this morning. But Elton John arrived from the UK and he became obviously a monster here in uh, North America in the 70s. Woodstock, Motown, yes. uh, Hendrix and Joplin both died in the 70s. Louis Armstrong as well. One texter says, if you're talking music, Please stay away from the Bay City Rollers. <laughs> no, how could we? There so are no, no promises. Oh my gosh, they're plaid suits. And then uh, somebody said around 1975, my first concert in Edmonton with my mom, Kiss, with all their costumes and cheap trick, the backup band. Holy, that's a good concert. Wow. That would be incredible. Cheap trick in their own right, but to see Kiss. And remember, there's a time we're not focusing on the 80s. It's all 70s. But in the 80s where the Kiss, uh, you know, uh, the the group of Kiss said, well, we're going to take the makeup off. Come on. You have you to. You can't. So we saw the, the real Kiss in the 70s. And in 1975, that would be one heck of a first concert. I was very young in the 70s. I, I know you were as well. So I don't have t- tons of memories of the 70s per se, but the music is something that really, it just, it I, that touches you. It's amazing what a song can do and bring you back to a time, isn't it? Yeah, it just instantly yeah. brings you back. So I'll be sharing my uh, 70s memories in the next hour. Going to stretch it right on through and thread on that music on the morning news this morning. But, you know, It's a simpler time, and it's always great to look back. Mm -hmm. A great idea.